It's March 24, 2022, and welcome to the Frontier Center for Public Policy. My name is David Lees, and I'm your host. And today, we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic, namely Canada's healthcare system. Sometimes healthcare hurts the very people it's supposed to heal. And this is now the situation in Canada, where weightless ration services in a fragmented system have resulted in tragic consequences for many, many patients. Susan Martinuk's newly published book, Patients at Risk, Exposing Canada's Healthcare Crisis, shares these heartbreaking stories and analysis. And it tells the story of how people are so often trapped in a system that prioritizes this intangible ideology over patient care. But how did Canada's beloved healthcare system lose sight of its original purpose to heal and devolve into a system that routinely denies healthcare to those who desperately need it. Well, today we'll be talking about that exact topic. And Susan Martinuk is an accomplished, nationally recognized researcher and writer who has consistently challenged the status quo policies that govern Canada's healthcare system. The former columnist and talk show host has published more than 1,500 commentaries and reports on themes related to healthcare and public policy. In 2012, she was awarded the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal for her contributions to Canadian society. And I'm very pleased to announce that this Frontier book by Susan has become the number one bestseller on, in its category on Amazon in Canada. So we're delighted by that and congratulations and welcome, Susan. Thank you very much, David. You know, I'm really delighted that uh, you could join us today. Uh, we've got so much to talk about. And, you know, Susan, I just love the book. It's, it's got this unique combination of both data and analysis about a pretty complex subject, namely our healthcare system. But it also has the stories, the stories about patients that have been really impacted. And, and I know you have a lot of experience as a researcher, as a journalist, and, um, and I know we have superb people in the system. Absolutely. But, you know, on reflection, Susan, were you surprised in retrospect after writing this book about, frankly, how bad the state of our healthcare system is in Canada? I wasn't that surprised about finding out the facts about the system. I was fairly familiar with it before. But I think what shocked me and what provides the um, a greater interest in the book is the stories of the people who were hurt by the system and by the number of stories of people. Um, a lot of websites and hashtags now are dedicated to people who've been hurt by Canadian healthcare. And that to me was very surprising. Patients okay. are beginning to uh, voice their concerns and tell their experiences online. Very good. Now you said that um, in the book, it was fascinating how weightless really define medical care in Canada today. And uh, I didn't realize that the numbers are so huge. In fact, in the book, you say 1.2 million are on waitlist, Canadians on waitlist at the end of 2021. In fact, you point out that waitlists are really the key factor driving chronic pain, um, financial losses and mortality in Canada. In fact, if, if I recall, 1920 Canadians die tragically on waitlists every day. Um, 
So what do you mean by those waitlists defining medical care in Canada? Well, even though Canada likes to say that it has a universal healthcare system that offers everything, you know, free of charge and equal access to all, that's that's very false. And in fact, the only guarantee that you have in Canada is access to a wait list, whether it be for a surgical procedure or for a doctor, a family doctor, um, or to see a specialist. Uh, even the very best kind of care uh, is still dependent on a wait list. Doctors can no longer guarantee that they can take care of you or that they can take care of you in a timely manner. So in that way, doctors have basically lost control of how they can take care of their patients. Wow. And there is one patient in particular that I remember in the book that um, was a young, healthy male, and he suffered a spinal cord injury. It wasn't anything that was, uh, you know, that caused potential for death or anything, but it wasn't until eight weeks after the injury that he got a name of a surgeon who would accept him for surgery. So for eight weeks, he could not move. After that, he began to wait and wait for care. And finally, the BC Ministry of Health told him that it would probably be over a year from then before um, the proper surgeon would be able to give him a call and offer him a chance at surgery. In the meantime, no employment, no money. He lost temporary custody of his son because he wasn't employed. Uh, these are all just kinds of things that people don't think about when you hear the word wait list. You just think that people are, are waiting yeah. for a, you know some innocuous type procedure. But lots of times it is, it's a medically necessary procedure and people are forced to to basically go without care for any number of months or years. Wow. So that's a powerful illustration how that dynamic of waitlist in, in our country defines the inability to deliver um, healthcare and, and really change people's lives for the worse, like really <laughs> has a huge impact. Mm -hmm. um, so just quickly on the other side of it is, is you mentioned about um, GPs. Um, how many Canadians do not have a family physician? Right now, it's um, estimated that there are about 5 million Canadians over the age of 12 who are looking for a family physician. Wow. And that includes over a million people in Ontario, uh, over 25% of all Quebecers, and almost 750,000 people in British Columbia. Wow. Other provinces are about 20%. It's really so, hard to imagine or fathom that, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, that means that general things that are supposed to be taken care of on an annual basis or checked simply aren't happening and screenings aren't happening for cancer. And even if they do, uh, if they are diagnosed, for example, with something like cancer, there's no GP that's going to be there to guide their care. Well, now, uh, just pausing for a sec, I, I know it's a huge topic in itself, but COVID-19 comes along. We, we already set the stage that our healthcare system is crumbling. And then what did COVID-19 do to it, Susan? Well, our system was already crumbling in that, uh, one, we didn't have enough doctors. Two, we didn't have enough acute care beds. And those are the beds that are used for, uh, for your average hospital patient. 
And according to international rankings, we have, I think, second to last in OECD countries, the second to last number of, or second lowest number of beds available for treatment. Uh, we have all a very low number of ICU beds. And when all those things are taken together, when something like COVID happens, there's no way for the system to respond. The, the system is absolutely overwhelmed very easily. Right. And we've seen that in Ontario and in the larger centers across Canada. So it's already Another, rigid two other Sorry, I was just going to say two other issues that compound that fact are, are that Canada has the uh, longest stays in its hospital beds of any OECD country. And we have the slowest discharge rates. Now, so all of these that? people things, stay in the bed longer. Than that's right. That's right. We're slow and we're, yeah, they're less likely to be discharged than in other OECD developed countries. And, so we and really, why is that, Susan? No one really knows. I think one factor would be that we have a lot of people in beds who should be in other types of care. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's a whole other topic on itself, the need for long-term care with the upcoming gray tsunami with people getting older in Canada. Obviously, we're going to have to address that. But I think that is probably the most likely reason for it. Okay. You know, there was a um, kind of amusing story, um, a joke, if you will, that you shared in the book. It was quite funny. I want to share that with um, our audience. It's the story of two Jakes. The first Jake needed a hip replacement and waited some two years and was out of work and lost their home. The second Jake needed a hip replacement and had an x-ray the same day and had surgery the following week and was back to work, in quotes. What is the difference between the two Jakes? Well, Jake one is a human and the second Jake is a dog. What a, what a tragic illustration and joke about really our healthcare system that you can get a, um, a dear pet looked after far quicker than our loved, loved ones as human beings. Isn't that, I just found that very powerful. It really is. Um, and there's also another story in the book that uh, sort of illustrates that where this woman lost her mother after her mother uh, had a hip. Sorry, had, after her mother bro broke her hip, the woman was um, placed in hallway waiting for care. She wasn't operated on for I think it was three or four days. And by that time, a blood clot, clot had formed and she died of a blood clot. And meanwhile, the woman's, uh, the, the woman whose mother's died, mother died, her sister's dog was hurt in a car accident just three or four months after that. And the dog got taken care of just, you know, that same day. And wow. she just lamented the fact that why is it that my mother had to wait so long and yet we could take care of our dog so easily. Wow. What a, what a, what a bizarre reality. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, the importance of early diagnosis. Uh, we know that medically it's so important. Um, and I, I found it very powerful in the book because you pointed out how we hear all the time, the refrain when it comes to proactively dealing with cancer, that early diagnosis is the key strategy. Um, and yet that important message hasn't really been, has been lost on our political class in charge of this whole system, hasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, screening for cancer has, is, has been the message, I mean, for decades now, 
get out, get screened for whatever type of cancer it is. And yet people can't do that if they don't have a family doctor and they don't do it if they don't have a family doctor. So as a result, people are seeing cancers that are larger than they need to be when they finally do get diagnosed. And that has all kinds of implications then for their treatment, whether it be through surgery, chemotherapy or radiation. It's, it's really profound. I also found a very interesting quote, and I'm going to read it. I know that you know it, but I'm, I'm curious whether our audience does. And the quote goes like this. It's a myth that Canada has the best healthcare system in the world. We spend more per capita on healthcare than many other countries. What's worse is that while we do this, we get poor outcomes for our patients. The Commonwealth Fund ranked us second from the last in a study compared to other countries such as the UK, Australia, France, and Germany. And of course, Susan, you'll know this, but that was none other than Dr. Jane Philpott, the Federal Minister of Health in 2016. So were you right. surprised by that quote? I, I, to me, I, I was somewhat surprised to see that. It's surprising in that one, a medical doctor is the one that's saying it. And secondly, the fact that she was the health minister at that time and that she was willing to actually tell people that, look, our health care system is in trouble. And uh, most people probably would not be able to say that uh, in a public in a public setting that was in an in an address to the Canadian Medical Association. Most uh, people would not be able to say that, but she went ahead and did it. And one would have think that that could have sparked some kind of a public response amongst doctors, professionals or Canadians, and yet it didn't. So hmm. that's somewhat concerning that, that we just allowed it to go by without any reaction. Yeah, so in, in a way, it's an interesting comment you make, Susan, in that one of the observations I'd have is that observing this um, debate or discussion about healthcare, the debate in Canada is remarkably, how to describe it, muffled or not very focused about change or improvement. It's just all kinds of flags of Canada and pride, and somehow this is wrapped up in our identity. Do, do you find that interesting, that dynamic? Right. The, so much of what we talk about in Canada is myth. And I address that uh, quite strongly in the book that we look at healthcare basically as a, as a symbol and something that's so Canadian and so unique to us that we have to do everything we can to protect it. Yes. When in fact, the reality is that it's one of the worst healthcare systems in the world and one of the most expensive systems in the world. I think it's classified as the second most expensive system in the world. So uh, Canadians really, before they get into a debate and before we talk about things, we really have to agree that there are certain um, facts that we have to have our conversation based on. And one of those is, is based on realities. We can't just talk about the myths of, of healthcare and symbols and how important it is that we continue to, uh, that we continue to keep universal healthcare only as a government monopoly. Exactly. And in fact, I should just say one of the most interesting things that I did find uh, when I was doing research for this book, was a, uh, a survey that came out about 10 years ago. And like most surveys, it asked Canadians how, what was their support for Canadian healthcare? And it gained very high support. It was nine, nine out of 10 people said they, they supported our healthcare system. And four out of five said that they gave it their unqualified support. 
So that's just your typical survey. But then this one went on and asked them specifically to list what was a key strength of Canadian healthcare. And I'm just going to look down here and say um, the majority of respondents said, 61% said that the key strength of our healthcare system was that it was universal, free, and equal. In other words, they just picked the, the principles that it's founded upon. They like nothing the ideals. real, nothing concrete in our yeah. system. The next highest group was 21%, and they said they were unsure and they didn't have an answer. The next highest group was 4.5%. It fell down that far, and they said a general positive attitude which is hardly something that we can say is unique to Canadian healthcare. Mm -hmm. Most interesting is that 4.3% said literally nothing, nothing. They could not think of one thing that was a key element or strength of Canadian healthcare. And then the lowest group was 4.0% and they said, oh, maybe our doctors and nurses play an important role. So doctors and nurses were the only real tangible that was mentioned in the survey and it fell underneath uh, the 4.3% that said nothing. So that shows you that Canadians are really stuck for information. They don't understand much about how our healthcare system works and they're just stymied when called upon to name something real about it. That's yeah. good. Yeah. what That's a great summary, Susan. In fact, um, in the book, you had a, a wonderful quote uh, from a U of T um, researcher. I think it's called, the quote was, Medicare, a pillar of pride for most Canadians, doesn't feel universal for those struggling, sometimes waiting for years to access a family doctor. I think that was Rebecca Renkes, if I, if I remember. That's right. Yes. So the yeah, reality... Absolutely. Saying that a system is universal and that there's equal access and that it's free, just saying it doesn't make it so... Exactly. And so if you, if you had to characterize the reality, is it really focused then on rationing? Is that it? Universal care is essentially, yes, rationing care and services. There yeah. is only so much money to provide so much care. And when that's done, then you go on a wait list. Wow. So there's, that's the only logical endpoint for exactly. providing universal health care to an unending number of Canadians and their healthcare visits. Now, now, Susan, I, I thought it was quite interesting in the book, how you reflect on some of the, the back history regarding the founding of Medicare. And I think this maybe explains it a little bit, but I loved your reflection on the history, including with Tommy Douglas, um, mm -hmm. others like the federal minister or bureaucrat Mitchell Sharp. And there was it was fascinating. You, you said that when Medicare was first founded, there was a vision even for integrated community health clinics. I didn't realize that. But the point was that the dilemma was that when Medicare was cobbled together as a shared cost plan between the feds and the province, they never really had a robust, strong financial plan to undergird this whole program. And so it was all, always pretty tenuous from the beginning, wasn't it, uh, Susan? Right. From the very beginning, uh, when the uh, CCF party first came out with uh, Medicare in Saskatchewan in the 1940s is sort of when they started it, they found that they could only bring it in incrementally. You know, the doctors did not go under Medicare until the 1960s. 
and they they abjectly opposed it. So uh, what happened was when there was a change of the guard and when the Liberal Party got into um, got control of the Saskatchewan government, they got there, they opened up the books and found that the NDP or sorry, the CCF back then really had absolutely no idea how to control the costs of Medicare or how they were going to pay for it, even though that had been their campaign promise for every election that they were going to provide everything. But they had no plan for it. So from the very beginning, Saskatchewan was left scrambling to try and pay for it, for Medicare and to try and figure out how to do it. And then the it was sold to the federal government this, later, right? Sorry, the most interesting part is, yes, the, uh, the, the civil servants that were in charge of coming up with how to pay for it from the NDP's perspective, uh, they were fired by the Liberal government as soon as the Liberal government figured out that they had nothing. Uh, and so they were fired the by the Saskatchewan Lester, Liberal government? Pardon me? They, they were fired by the Saskatchewan Liberal government? They were fired by the Saskatchewan government and waiting in the wings, looking for somebody to figure out how to fund a national Medicare strategy was Lester B. Pearson and the Liberal Party in Ottawa. And so they hired these same civil servants that were fired by Saskatchewan for not being able to come up with something legitimate to cover Medicare. And then they brought these guys in and had them do the do Medicare on a national scale. So it was uh, a system that was quite doomed from the start in terms of any kinds of financial integrity. Wow. Because, you know, speaking of uh, like a foundational principle, I think you mentioned in the book, uh, was it Tommy Douglas who emphasized that, among other things, the system needed to be effective, efficient and responsible. But we never hear those principles any anymore, do we? No, he initially had eight tenets that he wanted to found a Canadian healthcare on. And then when the Canadian government came out with its version of Medicare, for some reason, it stripped those three elements from it. They're not, there was no discussion of them. And uh, so those are the three forgotten tenants from Tommy Douglas. And people would be shocked because today those are the very three tenants that are most important and that would would maybe have allowed Medicare to survive. Exactly. Isn't that ironic? Now, one of the things I also noticed in the book was how you have a lot of great insight here around how our system seems to be stuck, unable to change, to really be better. It's such a low-performing system. Certainly, it's among the last in the OECD rankings. Um, But I was very shocked by kind of an insidious dynamic, and we've talked about a little bit before, but it appears to kind of explain part of why our healthcare system is stuck. And, and I'm, I'm wanting to ask if this is accurate. We have Canadians don't know the system until you need it. And then once they get in the system, e.g. they become patients, they are often overwhelmed, if not too sick and tired to protest. And then, so the problem is you're really not in a position to change it. And then finally, And this was a very interesting angle. We have this monopolistic system whose overseers and decision makers don't really use the system. I didn't quite fully grasp this, Susan. So you have judges, politicians, and you even use the the aside of professional athletes. When they get injured, they don't use the system that we use in the provincial healthcare system. They use other things. 
Can you can you explain that to to us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. There um, are. Sorry, I just I've got a cat in front of me. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna name it and claim it. There's a cat in front of no me. No problem. <laughs> it's a delightful cat. Okay. Sorry. Yes, people are shocked because they are told from from birth on. We believe that uh, Medicare is universal, that it is equal access and that it is free. And we we take it for granted that we go to the doctor and that we get in for free. But in the reality of it, one, it's not universal. It doesn't cover everything. It only covers about 64% of all healthcare charges. The rest are paid for out of pocket or by private insurance. The second thing is it's not free. Canadians seem to forget that they pay taxes on that healthcare and that's what supports healthcare and it is to the amount of about 265 billion dollars each year wow. which equates to about seven thousand dollars for each canadian finally um it's not equal and i think this is one thing that canadians need to know there is no equal access to healthcare. some people do get in earlier some people can pay their way to get care faster and that is a part of the system right now so when we talk about changing it, we're not talking about changing it to the system, to a kind of system that benefits some people over others. That already exists. Mm -hmm. And in particular, anyone who has federal health insurance, including, uh, yeah, as you said, judges, um, members of parliament, civil servants, et cetera, they all have basically, uh, you know, get your healthcare free card and they can go to a private clinic or to a private hospital anything and it's paid for by our tax dollars um professional act sorry professional athletes are another group uh they don't wait on a waiting list for an mri if they get injured they get they pay for it and they get a scan done the very next day um and then also there's people who know people is is how i claim it and it's basically doctors who do professional courtesy for other doctors or for people that they may know their friends and finally, there's people who have a lot of money. And this group of people has always had better health care because when they want to and if they want to, they simply leave the country. Exactly. If they can't yeah. find a private, a private uh, facility within Canada, they'll simply fly somewhere where they can get well, it done. So there is a, a disparity in health care um, that exists right now. Susan, we often hear that our healthcare system is underfunded. But if we just shovel in more money into the system, even though we pay per capita in Canada, the second highest in the world. If we just give it more money, it's underfunded. Um, would that be the solution? No, I'm not saying that it has sufficient money because, but because it, it may need more money uh, in terms of hiring more doctors, but actually what it, it sort of needs to just realign them where the money goes. Mm -hmm. Uh, right now, it could go to doctors, it could go to beds, it could go to infrastructure. Um, but it's basically unsustainable when we're already paying, you know, 35 to 40% of our, our taxes are going towards, um, towards health care. And it's estimated by some people that maybe as much as 80% of our taxes would have to, would have to fund health care by the year 2030. And that's, that's just unsustainable. That's impossible. Yeah. So something has to change. So this system, 
this healthcare system that so many people have pride in is hurting people. And uh, you've witnessed uh, the incredible impact on, on people's lives. You've documented in terms of many stories beyond the statistics. Um, and, and I was really moved by those stories. And is there one that, a top one that comes to your mind that just illustrates the, the challenges of this, this whole system? Well, there's a couple of the ones that uh, the stories that I found that were associated with children were the mm. ones that were hardest to to uh, to read about and write about. And for example, I think about one young fellow named Walid, who was a young boy and he was diagnosed with having a kyphosis, which is a, a curvature of the spine. And it was quite severe and he needed surgery almost immediately after it was diagnosed. And the clinical recommendation in that situation is that surgery would be performed within 12 weeks of the diagnosis. In the end, this poor fellow waited 120 weeks, 10 wow. times the length of time that he should have waited. And at that point, his mother just took him to the United States and had it done there. Unfortunately, with this type of condition, as it uh, as it progresses and as it gets worse and worse, it becomes more and more difficult to take care of it surgically. And there were complications. That young man is now, as of 12 years old, he is now paralyzed for life. Wow. So that's one story that really, uh, that really struck me. Another one was a young girl named Laura who suffered from a rather aggressive type of cancer and desperately needed a a type of bone marrow transplant and the doctor that she had this was in Hamilton the very doctor that she had was the one who had pioneered this treatment for this particular cancer so she had the right doctor but at that time there were 30 people ahead of her on the wait list to have that treatment done and that hospital only had the resources to do five transplants per month wow as a result, she died as well. Boy, those are really tragic. Um, at this point, I wanted to welcome a, a special guest to join us um, who has quite a story as well to illustrate, um, you know, this, this discussion about healthcare. And uh, I want to welcome um, well-known journalist and broadcaster Lorna Duick. Lorna is an active caregiver with her husband, who has Parkinson's disease. After a 30-year career in journalism, including 16 years as a, commenta uh, a commentator and writer at the Globe and Mail, uh, she was the CEO at Yes TV and Crossroads Christian Communications, and now in a, is in a part-time role. Um, Lorna currently works as the interim CEO of the News Forum, Canada's newest 24-hour TV news channel. Lorna, you live in Burlington with your husband, Vern. So welcome, Lorna. Thank you. Thank you. So Lorna, um, we're so glad that you could join us and, and share with us a little bit more about your experience. Uh, can you tell us about it? Well, we were just like any other Canadian couple family moving along and uh, started to see symptoms, started to see something which uh, I thought this must, this must be heart disease. Like this must be something blocking uh, his, my husband's uh, energy and uh, levels and his circulation. And Vern, we've been married uh, 42 years and we, we know each other well, of course. 
Um, and he was just falling asleep and he was dragging and he was, it was just, it was, uh, you know, he, he, this was a fellow who, you know, went on a couple marathon uh, runs a year. He had been very energetic. His times just kept slipping in his runnings. And uh, so we went to our family doctor and we are one of the Canadians incredibly fortunate to have had the same family doctor for 23 years. We got in, she doesn't take any more patients, hasn't for years, but she knows us. She knows us. And, um, and so she, she just did a few tests with the wrists and did a few things and said, Fern, I think you have Parkinson's disease. Wow. And it was just a shocker to us. And we just thought this, I don't think this can be anyway, long story short, uh, that meant we needed a referral to a neurologist mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, a, a family doctor cannot diagnose it conclusively, nor can they properly treat it. And, and she warned us, our doctor warned us and said, now you're going to wait to get in, but I know somebody. And as Susan has so uh, well explained, she pulled a favor for us and we, we got in within two and a half months. And, and then our doctor told us, and you will only get to see a neurologist at the most twice a year at, at the most twice, twice a, year. a year. And you will, you will get, you will get about 10 minutes with a neurologist Anyway, fast forward, um, David and Susan, the disease within three years was so significant, Vern had to uh, re retire from work. And he was a financial planner, he had a small company, and fortunately, he ate his own cooking and had bought disability insurance when he was a young man. So it, this qualified for disability insurance. And and that has been part of helping us uh, be able to manage retirement early due to a disease. And within uh, less than two years of him being retired, the disease had progressed so much. I really needed to quit work in my more demanding roles because it, Parkinson's just affects, well, has 36 different symptoms that affect your life. Wow. What a powerful story. So this didn't just affect your health it, it it affected profoundly your your economic opportunity as a couple <laughs> and the future of your life yes it did and for all the people who aren't married to a financial planner i don't know how people do this wow. when early in aging uh, a, a condition or a disability affects affects you I, i'm somewhat surprised to hear this during the sense that you live in the, the the gta if you will the greater toronto area um and was that difficult to find a neurologist and then when you did find one you could only see them twice a year and you said 10 minutes each yeah and within um within two years of treatment that was so unsatisfactory because the disease is very complicated um we, 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 we would just go to the car and cry wow. because uh, it just was, it, it was just so disheartening. This thing has turned our life upside down. Parkinson's has turned our life upside down and we just had 10 minutes. Sometimes we got 20. Uh, I, I talked to Vern before this call. And, and so here's what we did do is, you know, because of my own skills as 
as a leader, having been a CEO, I, I knew how to chase. I knew how to solve problems. And I also understood the world of advocacy. And so the Parkinson's Canada has set up Parkinson's support groups in towns, in cities, and uh, we volunteer now with that. And we are really good advocates for each other. In fact, Parkinson's Canada tells us, don't have speakers, use the time of your support groups to just do medical hacks. So we learned where there were better neurologists. We learned how to get on a better waiting list. We did wait two years to be on a waiting list. We knew how to agitate. And so we currently right now have four specialists that help us handle various aspects of this complex disease. And all of it has come through, as Susan said, those kind of special referrals that you, you get and do when you, when you know how to be a wow. push a push person. So we are getting, we're getting good health care now. But I'll tell you, if you are not, if you don't have the kind of skill set that our family has, I don't know how people would manage it. Well, so the punchline here is, is really profound. The, the toll on you in so many ways, not the least of which is emotional. But given your leadership skills and capabilities, you're able to kind of rally a team around you, it yeah. sounds like, to be able yeah. to be an effective advocate for what? Your own health and your own future. Yeah. yeah. And we did that team in part through other like Parkinson's people, not in part because of other Parkinson's people. Like our team, we learned from support groups in Florida. We learned from the wonderful Larry Gifford in Vancouver, who, who made a podcast about this uh, when he got young onset Parkinson's. Like we, we, we were just, wow. we have webinars on every day from Michael J. Fox Foundation, from Davis Finney. Like we really access U.S. brains and webinars to then lean into our Canadian healthcare team and say, can we try this? Can we try that? Yeah, can we do this? Right. What a powerful story. And I want to look a little bit more with your um, leadership, Susan and, and, and Lorna to talk about how do we get out of this? I think Susan, you called it kind of an ideological straitjacket where we're, we're caught up more with the ideals of healthcare and not really wrapping our heads around the realities of how this system that is so ill ill-designed and ill-functioning is really hurting people. How do we get out of this? Because um, when I, th I think of the wait list, they're all often kind of maybe not understood. They're often kind of um, dismissed or brushed off as inconveniences. No, this is life-changing stuff, isn't it? Mm -hmm. How do we get out of this? Well, you know, um, it's interesting that you that you asked this question, because just in the last couple of days, we've seen again where our government is about to take us further and further into uh, what into uh, wait lists because of its ideological principles, where the NDP are going to force the Liberals to come up with some kind of a national pharmacare program that we cannot afford. We can't even afford what we're doing right now for people. We, can't, we don't have enough doctors, we don't have enough beds. Our healthcare system's already crumbling and now they want to add one more thing to it just because of some kind of ideology. They need to get real and they need to understand the numbers and look at the numbers and uh, make really some significant changes. Um, one of the first things then that I think we have to do is we all have to admit and we all have to know and understand that healthcare simply is not sustainable. 
at this point. It is not sustainable. We cannot keep funding it um, for everybody and fund all things. So that has to change. A second thing is, and this is really important, is that we understand that uh, healthcare is not an either or proposition. It's often played up that it's either we have healthcare as it is now in Canada, universal healthcare, or we have something like the American system, like the American system where people routinely are in the news because they couldn't pay for treatment or they have these massive debts. That's a so red in, herring. In, in the minds of Canadians, that's all they see is either what we have or, you know, individuals who face a mountain of, of debts. And that's not the way it is at all. The U.S. has probably the only system in the world that might be worse than ours in some category. So we really would be uh, doing a uh, doing ourselves in by trying to mimic that system. So we have to just shut down that conversation and say, look, it's not an either-or situation. There are lots of healthcare systems out there that do work, that do have universal healthcare in a hybrid system with with other care. And Germany, France, you'd say? Absolutely. And they are all at the top of the list for uh, healthcare rankings in terms of of getting things done and and doing so with a smaller amount of money. And one one clear example is Germany, where the universal system there serves 75 million people. They have one-tenth the number of healthcare administrators as we have in Canada, to serve half that population. So we have 10 times the number of, of administrators in our healthcare system as Germany. So those are the kinds of things that we need to look at. Very good. What about you, Lorna, your thoughts? Well, I do think that we have to, um, we have to, we have to try to get this at a, at a policy level at the government, this idea of just continue to throw money at things uh, and no, no bottom line solution at it. And I think we do need um, to figure out the patient advocate role, the the idea of, you know, what we learned just through the school of crisis that we went through. You you have to you have to come alongside people who are struggling. Like it like we had one sick person in the family and one healthy angry person in in the family, me, and I I could fight. I could fight. But so many people do not have that. So yeah. we, need, we need to figure that out. How can we get, like, we, we can't just be passive. We must, on a policy level and then on a patient level, we've got to figure out how to get this solved. So we need to speak up at different levels. And um, speaking of speaking up, um, I can think of a quote from uh, a fellow by the name of Dr. Brian Day, who said, uh, and of course, uh, Dr. Brian Day was, was certainly uh, involved with, with Frontier in a big way as uh, he's with the Canby Clinic. He said, the government cannot have it both ways. You cannot promise healthcare and then not deliver it in a timely way and then outlaw the patient's ability to access it independently. And this is, of course, one of the central issues of this lawsuit in place. So perhaps that's part of the, the solution as well, to be able to finally cut through the system to help people actually have health and a future. Right. And if I can just um, add to that, the story that I told earlier about Derek, the fellow who injured his spinal cord and was now waiting for at least a year before a surgeon would even call him uh, to, to look at it. Um, 
his friends got together and raised $15,000 for him to have that kind of surgery done at a private clinic. Indeed. At the same time as they did that, the, uh, the BC government's rules that you cannot pay for private surgery came into play and he could not access even, even private surgery if he wanted to pay for it. So he was stuck there, unable to get help in the monopoly, the government monopoly, and the same monopoly was telling him that he couldn't even pay to get private care. Yeah, that, that's the definition of insanity, surely. So in, in this case, I, I, I notice a lot of comments from our audience, one of which is um, uh, affirmation around the, the comment around, I think, Susan, it was yours, around the inability of present funding to cover the, the core of the, the Medicare system and how this whole idea of the PharmaCare dental plan is really uh, kind of uh, delusional thinking. But we need to focus on priorities of building capacity, including infrastructure, staffing, training and development. I think obviously technology would be part of that, that list as well. So that's well said. Um, so when we look at um, this situation, I guess one of the things I'm really struck by it is the ethics, the, the morality of this when we talk about the quality of life involved in healthcare and the need for people to be empowered with choice in terms of the kind of healthcare they get. But in Canada, we're really we're really stymied when it comes to even that measure of choice. And that's kind of almost a human rights issue, is, is it not? Yeah, it's interesting that uh, so many Supreme Court decisions have come down on the side of the individual and the fact that the individual could be harmed if certain policies go through. And the Canadian Parliament as well has said that, you know, if an individual is suffering too much, then they have given them the right to go and to ask for a doctor assisted suicide. And yet at the same time, they do not allow people to pay for private surgeries or to pay uh, to get any kind of care that would allow them to live their lives in a, in a healthy, happy, productive way. Okay, so, so Susan, I want to I pick up on that comment briefly, because that's one of the comments on the chat board here is that what is the relationship here between the, the, the government's moving ahead with made legislation, medically assisted um, dying, and that whole relationship between people on these waiting lists, as you're alluding to, on great pain. And then meanwhile, they're opening this door up. So if you're in great pain, you have this door to, to, to go to death. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, almost a horrific conversation, isn't it? It really is. It's, it reminds me of, of Nietzsche's quote that, you know, the very definition of stupidity is forgetting what you're trying to accomplish. And what our healthcare, healthcare system is supposed to be doing is treating the patient. And yet we're, you know, giving people rights to, to um, use the made legislation instead of giving them the options that they need so that they can live a healthy, productive life. Very well said. Lorna, when you look at um, your story, would you have any advice for people as they uh, God forbid, get a diagnosis that your husband did. Don't go it alone. Like, like we, it's such a confusing backlogged system. You have to, you have to get into a support group. You have to um, 
you have to phone people, you have to ask your doctor, do you know anybody else who has this? You have to Google, <laughs> just, just, um, and, and ask your kids, ask your adult kids to help you, ask a sibling to help you. You really, it, it's going to take a team. Wow. The team theme comes up again. And speaking of team, we as a country face a significant challenge as we look at our healthcare system today, especially as we roll out of COVID, so to speak. We didn't follow the, the uh, pandemic planning, which is very unfortunate. We know that, the emergency plan. Um, and we've paid a huge price. So as we look at also our financial situation, inflation to boot, interest rates, I could go on and on, and I don't mean to depress people. But are we getting to that so-called tipping point where we have no choice but to dive into this discussion about healthcare? We seem to be really good as Absolutely. Canadians about avoiding this discussion instead of embracing, say, this is about bigger issues than just politics as usual. This is about actually helping people. How about that for a speech today? Any thoughts on that? Oh, I, I couldn't agree more, David and Susan. We, it's, it's beyond the tipping point. It's, it, it's got to start. And, and, you know, there's been such a crisis, of course, with Ukraine lately, but um, th this, is, this is the conversation to have as we are at this stage of post-COVID uh, protocols. It's, it's, we are so overdue. Well said. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, COVID has given us an opportunity and we would be remiss if we did not use it to have this national conversation. Very good. And people need to start sharing their stories and telling other people about their healthcare experiences because it's only by doing that that people who don't use the system will understand what kinds of problems we really have. Exactly. I want to read a quote and then I'm going to turn to you, Susan, as we reflect on wrapping things up shortly. But um, I was struck by a quote that says, I am a nurse and it is criminal. Every day we hear of prolonged wait lists, deteriorating health, mental well being. Canadians deserve better. We all deserve choice and the ability to manage our own health. And that was Nancy, a nurse no less from British Columbia. So Susan, as you think about summing things up with a story, which, uh, which of the many stories that you've come across would you like to share now as we close? Yeah, well, many of the stories that we've shared so far have been uh, so filled with despair and uh, and even death. So I wanted to end on something positive, and that is the power of story to create change. And the most vivid example that we have of that is uh, by a fellow of the name of Seku Koivu, who many people may remember was a captain of the United of the uh, Montreal Canadiens for a number of years. And early in 2001, when he went to training camp in September, uh, he was not feeling well. Doctors diagnosed him as having an abdominal cancer. So he immediately started undergoing some very aggressive uh, types of chemotherapy. And after a few months, he started feeling better. And he was still in the middle of his chemotherapy. But doctors there decided that they would send him to the University of Sherbrooke because they had an experimental machine there called a PET scanner. And it was the only one in Canada. So they went and it showed that uh, the cancer was completely gone. He'd only been through half of his treatments, the cancer was gone. So they thought, why not just reserve his uh, physiological resources and stop treatment? Sure enough, 
he was ready to get back on the ice by uh, playoff time and received the loudest and the longest um, standing ovation as, a, as any Montreal Canadian has ever had. So he was so grateful for this that he started a very high profile foundation to uh, raise money for funds for a PET scanner in Montreal. And the government took notice, the government in Quebec, and they since then have established a network of PET scanners that's more than 20 PET scanners across the province so that they are easily accessible by anybody who has cancer to uh, diagnose the cancer, to follow their treatment, and to determine you know, the status of their situation after treatment. And that is huge compared to, I mean, say BC only has maybe four, maybe five PET scanners, that's it. But Quebec has more than 20. So it's really incredible how one person's story can galvanize change. And so I'm hoping that that might be the case with some of these stories that we've been talking about today. Well, what a wonderful and inspiring story to end our session together. We've covered a lot of ground today. Um, Susan and Lorna, and I want to thank you, Lorna Duick, broadcaster and healthcare advocate. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story. And Susan Martinuk, a senior fellow with Frontier and author of the book, Patients at Risk, Exposing Canada's Healthcare Crisis. On behalf of all of us today, we're so grateful that you could be voices of courageous leadership on behalf of all of us. So thank you to all of you. Uh, friends of Frontier who joined us today. I encourage you to keep involved with Frontier and we welcome your comments and your feedback. Be sure to join us for Leaders on the Frontier. We are pleased to announce our guest today will be the Honorable Grant Devine, former Premier of the great province of Saskatchewan. On the occasion of the 40th, 40th anniversary of the election of the Divine Government, we'll be reflecting uh, with us on that period, a significant time of policy change that is still being felt today. Be sure to join us, invite others on April the 14th. Thank you to all of you who donate to Frontier. You make our mission possible. As a, a nonpartisan think tank, we do not accept any government funding. Your support makes our mission possible, so thank you. And remember, without Open discussion and debate, you are not thinking and nor are you free. Keep asking good questions and do not be afraid. On behalf of all of us at Frontier, thank you for joining us and have a great day.